start using cutting-edge warp speed 5G technology with your cell phone. Let me tell you about my friends at MobileMobile.io. They have an ultra-fast 4G LTE and 5G network that covers 99% of Americans. So they've got you covered everywhere. Think about it for a moment. You have the opportunity to take a test drive for 10 days with unlimited talk, text, and premium data. What is premium data? Premium data is an allotment of a cellular data that you receive from a higher priority on the network. You won't get throttled like you will with some of those, well, non-brand service providers. To find out more information, all you have to do is go to mobilemobile.io. That's mobilemobile.io to start your 10-day free trial. This show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hello and welcome to the Jay Allen Show. Hopefully everything is good and grand inside of your neck of the woods. So hopefully you had a fantastic Independence Day, especially if you're here in the U.S., because it's kind of difficult to celebrate something that's not celebrated across the world if you're not in the U.S., unless you're an American in another country, which I can get that as well. So let me tell you, on today's version of the broadcast and podcast, we are not going to have an interview. I am actually going to release an episode that you're only able to get on Safety FM Plus of Around the Safety Podcast. So if you've been trying to keep up with some of them and you're not part of Safety FM Plus, this is an episode that we have not released to the general public um, in regards of what we normally were doing Previously, they were releasing some of the episodes. So this is going to be episode five of Around the Safety Podcast. So as part of the Independence Day weekend kind of thing, I figured we would go ahead and issue this one, especially with it being a shorter week. And you can kind of catch up on what was going around the safety podcast over the last little bit. Anyways, take a listen to this. Hopefully you really do enjoy it. And if you want to get more of them, go to safetyfmplus.com. Take a listen to this one. Tell me what you think. The Jay Allen Show is streaming now on safetyfm.live. Well, hello and welcome to another round of Around the Safety Podcast. Welcome to Episode 5. We have taken a listen to what you had to say and we have changed up the show just a tiny bit. Don't worry, we'll still get you out in 30 minutes or less. But we did listen that 10 clips didn't have to be the cut, that you wanted to hear more information on what exactly was going around on the safety pods. So we will do that for you here today, bringing you the best clips that we could find from around the world of safety right now on Around the Safety Podcast. In the mix. I have been within aviation for nearly 20 years. I have been flying until 2016 as a pilot and have always been interested in, you know, CRM and human factors topics. And I've been teaching that uh, the last couple of years. Um, So that is what I do today. And actually, Nipin, I was also thinking about when we talk about selling soft skills, uh, this is to a certain degree what I'm doing. Um, I'm just trying to 
create a different perspective, but I would actually also like to bring in that I do the CRM training and I have done that with, uh, you know, the very best of intentions based on how I uh, interpreted the rules of uh, how we actually teach CRM. So it's not until recently after I started at Lund University that I actually started to, you know, broaden my view and, and see it from a different perspective. I do understand that it can be difficult to see it differently if we are not really um, taught uh, in a specific manner or seeing the, the broader perspective as well. But for now, I'm in, you know, overwhelmed in my thesis work uh, at Lund University in Human Factors and Systems Safety. And it's been a great gift being there, also a bit of a, a challenge as well. That's what I'm actually doing today. What I would do now is just to, for the sake of our listeners, state what is it that this podcast is about and just to make the focus really clear. So the title of the podcast is a little bit humorous. It's called The Role of Soft Skills in Crew Resource Management Training. So we will occasionally use the word CRM or BRM, but it basically means the same thing as it is in the aviation world. It's the same concept, at least in the maritime world. So that's CRM. What we are saying is that, are we being sold the icing without the cake? The question that we'll be asking this podcast today is that, what is the importance of soft skills in the CRM training, particularly when it comes to addressing the competence requirements in high-risk industries? And the argument that I would like to put forward is something like this, that the notion of soft skills is not understood very well when it comes to CRM. It is actually sold as a replacement for experiential knowledge and skills, which some people would refer to as competence or technical knowledge, rather than being complementary and in many ways an add-on to it. So we are seeing soft skills slowly replacing the need for the technical knowledge and experience that you need to do your job. And that, in my view, is dangerous. There's a a lot of emphasis on uh, soft skills but very little on the technical knowledge and skills of people. How do you think about that title, Gitte? I can relate to that. But when we talk about technical knowledge, we're also talking about the experience of it or the lived experience of the work and how this practical knowledge is also a part of it that we leave out when we are just addressing soft skills. So that clip comes from embracing differences with Nippin Anard and Giddy Dam. Yeah, she was the guest on there. Has to have the best name in the business. Anyways, that's episode nine. Are we being sold the icing without a cake? There you go. That's what's going on now. I have to tell you, as we go through the mix of things that we get to take a listen to, it's always interesting to see what might come up next. Welcome to the Industrial Talk Podcast with Scott McKenzie. Scott is a passionate industry professional dedicated to transferring cutting-edge, industry-focused innovations and trends while highlighting the men and women who keep the world moving. So put on your hard hat, grab your work boots, and let's go. The, 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 when you start talking about the petri dish, I mean, it, it really requires a lot of collaboration. I mean, you have people in the field, and, and, and because I've been in the field, you've been in the field, they, 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 they know what's going on. They, they, there, there is a recognition that, hey, this is hazardous, got to be. I mean, there is a the safety uh, mindset. Do you find this, this 
academic type of uh, approach with the people in the field? Are you seeing more collaboration to work for greater solutions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so like you said, I mean, uh, workers out there, you know, I might, I might, I might argue a little bit that don't necessarily know always what they're seeing, and and. I would I would say that that's what science is telling us, and that's where the safety science comes Interesting. in, and that's where um, this, this approach called energy-based hazard recognition uh, kind of had its genesis, and it's it's basically recognizing that human beings have a lot going on in our daily environment. There's so many so many stimuluses coming in, and it's one of those things like when you get in your car and you drive home and you end up in the driveway, you know, like you don't really know how you got there, but yet you did all kinds of like complex risk and motor analysis and you you, you got there, right? Well, it's the same thing in a yeah. job site. When you go out there and you're, you're asking people to do things, a lot of times they just go in autopilot and we're only recognizing hazards that we have um, really our senses for, basic senses for, so like motion and gravity. Um, we have basic primal senses for that, but it's those higher level hazards like electrical and pressure, just to name a few that we don't really necessarily have a sense for, that takes a separate part of our brain to recognize. And so what the science, what, what we did as, as industry is we were always checking this box, failed to recognize hazard, failed to recognize hazard. And so then we came to the academics and we said, hey, why do we always have fail to recognize hazard as a root cause analysis? And then they took that and they started looking at, well, how does the brain work? What's the psychology of it? What's the technology of yes. it? What's, how do you actually see the world? And that's where the safety science part is really starting to come, come to fruition. See, I think that that's really interesting because you're absolutely correct. I, you know, you go to a lot of these organizations around the country, whatever, safety, and safety is important. Don't get me wrong. And it, it has to be an elevated conversation for all to have, right? And, it, and But what companies got into is like, hey, all right, for recognition, we're going to place this poster right up against the wall and say, safety, look, look, you know, and, and trying to create awareness that way. But then when they would leave, go through the door to their work, uh, they don't remember that poster. Well, why is that? Why, why is that the, the case? Why do we humans um, uh, want to cut corners? <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, it's it's a lot to do there's a lot of there's a lot of um context that goes into that you know i mean um i guess you know when i drove to work this morning i didn't drive the speed limit I, and i don't really think i was trying to cut corners i don't i mean i guess technically i was cutting a corner i was going a little faster than i should have and i left the house a little later than i should have so i was you know cutting a corner but but in the moment i was just i was just getting to work right and that's how workers view their day as they go through the work it's not this it's not this linear thing it's this very complex performance boundary that has all these different touch points that the only the worker can see and so we think because we put a poster up there that was the touch point that we saw back here in the office but we didn't see all these other things these production um, schedule uh, environmental issues that are that are pushing the performance boundary for the worker and that's why you know it, we have to if you think the poster is working and you're seeing it's not, it's because you're not going down and asking the worker what does work. If, if that if that kind of ties together and makes sense. Well, that clip came off of the Industrial Talk podcast with Scott McKenzie featuring James Upton. I have to tell you, I've been taking a listen to quite a few of those podcasts, and Scott really has it going on with his podcast series. If you haven't taken a look to that one or taken a listen to it, make sure to go by to his website and give him a check. Let's continue on with Around the Safety Podcast. 
The Mix. Welcome to Drug Safety Matters, a podcast by Uppsala Monitoring Center, where we explore current issues in pharmacovigilance and patient safety. So let's say you manage to develop an orphan drug and you want to submit it for approval. Is that process more difficult than for, let's call them conventional drugs? The process itself requires the collaboration often with external research organizations. So often it is a collaboration with what we call an investigator-sponsored study. It's entirely run by an external investigator, but we provide the regulatory support by providing the um, the documentation that the regulators want. So there has to be that discussions with the regulator to say what is the information they require for getting approval for this drug. Now, having said that, drug development in clinical trial in this setting is is more difficult because there are few patients and they're very widespread and um, sometimes you don't have a comparative drug. There's nothing to compare it to. So you have to compare it to, if available, the natural history of the disease. But other times, that is not even that available. So in many cases, you only get conditional approval. So if you get a conditional approval, then you have to set up a registry for these patients and, and follow these patients for many years before you can get a final approval. And just for those who don't know, how does conditional approval differ from regular approval? So conditional approval means that you have to continue to provide evidence to the regulators that the drug is effective and that it's safe. So you continue to provide the outputs of one of these registries that you have set up and you provide those on an annual basis and then you can get your conditional approval prolonged until you have, um, have enough information that the drug is really safe. Learning that a treatment is available may sound like the best news a rare disease patient could hope for. Yet some patients would tell you that the best day of their lives was when their condition was diagnosed. Because they're so rare, many physicians may never have come across rare diseases or never even heard about them. And with few or no genetic tests available to point doctors in the right direction, it can take years before a diagnosis is set. Up to 30 years, according to a survey conducted by Eurordis, an alliance of rare disease patient organizations in Europe. That limbo can be a huge source of distress for patients, who often report not being taken seriously or not even believed. And while they insist and wait to find out what's wrong, they're likely to be misdiagnosed and offered inappropriate treatments. But even when a diagnosis has been reached and a treatment is available, there are challenges to consider, as you'll hear from Christina in a moment. Okay, so an orphan drug is available for a certain number of patients affected by one of these rare diseases. How expensive will that treatment be for those patients? I can't say exactly how expensive it will be, but uh, companies who develop rare disease drugs usually work with uh, the healthcare systems to find solutions to get uh, drugs to patients. There can be donation programs. There can be special programs for these patients to get the drug so it's affordable. 
There might be some information you might not have known. That comes from Drug Safety Matters, Episode 7, The Challenge of Rare Disease. Featuring Christina Storm Moeller. So there you go. A lot of information being shared on that episode. Has your favorite clip made it onto the show yet? If not, let's see if it will make it into the sequence of events. If not, you can always come to our website and submit your favorite show. Let's see what's in the mix. In the mix. Uh, we're, we're not the GC on this site. We were just a sub. And the GC had had asked me to put together a rescue plan to speak to all trades on the site. Tony, I, I want to touch on something. One of the biggest things I see is, is a lot of companies look at safety as a cost center. When really right. it's a cost avoidance and could even be a, a profit center for us all. I mean, the payout for a fatality or a disability is phenomenal compared to spending a few thousand dollars on rescue equipment, right? So even just as simple as suspension trauma straps, you know, if we, get to, if we can get those on every harness to save the, uh, the suspended trauma that occurs when falling, that's huge. That's the first step. Yeah, that general contractor had, Tony, they had nothing. The main individuals in the job trailer had no idea that somebody had fallen until he had walked to the job trailer and, and said, hey, I've fallen. That's, that's unacceptable. We need to have means of communication and a rescue team deployed before fire rescue can get there. One of the, I, I always like to, to run these numbers uh, when I talk about rescue plans. So when an individual has fallen and has suspended, how long can they be suspended for before uh, orthostatic intolerance or suspension trauma is a, a term for it is, is uh, the symptoms start happening. So there's a lot of factors involved. That includes the body weight of the individual, how hard they fell, how far they fell. One of the things that we don't account for, though, is when that individual falls, we have to make contact to somebody to call 911. And then you have that 911 call, a couple minutes. And then the fire department to arrive, it could be anywhere from four to 10 minutes. So then they have to get to the top of the building. And then the fire department has to do technical rescue. And they got to make sure that they're being safe as well. They got to assess the situation. So we're overall, we're talking 30 minutes or more for a fire department to get to you, to get down to you, right? That's fatal. For anybody suspended without trauma straps, just freely suspended, that can be fatal. It's so important to have these rescue plans because 30 minutes is too long. You need to have a rescue plan and get to your victim way sooner than that. Uh, ANSI says you need to make contact within six minutes. You know, yeah. the, equipment's, the, the equipment is there now, and there's no reason not to have it is why. Yeah, I think those are all really, really great points. I'm going to ask you to comment on something else for us. You know, we we opened up the podcast talking about coronavirus and the risk associated with that and the considerations everyone needs to be taking from the CDC and how to how to best mitigate it. I think you'd mentioned to me earlier that you guys had taken a, I would consider kind of a unique approach in how you're continuing to keep your workers safe in the field. You want to talk a little bit about how you're managing your, your people and your equipment? At Steel Edge, our office staff is working remotely. As for the field guys, 
we have went out and we have bought cleaners, spray and wipes. Um, so I've asked the men to spray down their equipment with Lysol to wipe down the company vehicles. Uh, we, we sent out a, a mass email to everybody so nobody gets offended, but you know, we've asked not to shake hands and, and to keep our distance, try to avoid coming into the job trailer so much. Uh, everybody's kind of taking their own approach to it, but I think if, if everybody does their part, I think it's we can get through it and combat this all together. Keep in mind that the goal here from around the safety pod is that if you hear something that you like, Go find the episode, go find the show, take a longer listen to what exactly they have going on. That particular clip was coming from Pure Safety Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2, Importance of Fall Rescue Plans. And then, of course, they go in a little bit into talking about COVID, because, of course, that seems to be a popular subject as of now. Anyways, let's continue going down the path and seeing what exactly is out there around the safety podcast. In the mix. In the mix. You're listening to the Safety Tribe interview series brought to you by Advanced Safety. Um, so the charge parties are due to appear in Auckland District Court on this December 15th. So... On, on that day, what, what can we expect to see on the six o'clock headlines? What, what, what can we, you know? Be- Nothing much, actually, and it may not actually happen that date. So what oh, happens okay. with a lot of these cases is um, that there's a request for like, initial disclosures provided to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a lot of information for an initial disclosure. That's wit- witness statements and things like that, that photographs mm-hmm. and uh maps and plans and various things. So mm-hmm. that's provided, um, the summary of facts is provided to the entity and person that's been charged and sets out what they've alleged to have been charged and the charging mm-hmm. document sets out what the charges are that they face. They, um, the, in terms of the criminal process, that first call can be adjourned by a registrar. So what can happen is that people may not be ready or they... Um, want to request further disclosure, et cetera, before they enter into a position of whether or not they, um, and they're and they going to plead guilty or not. Mm. Um, so that first call potentially could actually be adjourned okay. um, and they may not actually turn up at court at all. Mm. If it does go ahead, then um, they may plead Guilty, but I'm I'm picking that there's probably going to be about two or three calls of it before you end up with it some form of plead, pleading. Mm-hmm. And then if you plead not guilty, then you get full disclosure. So you get everything of that the whole investigation. Sure. Now the reason is um that initial disclosure is enough for you to make a decision about whether or not you've done what's been alleged against you. That's what Parliament decided. Mm. Um full disclosure is when you decide that you're going to plead not guilty, and you're going to defend it, and then you get the investigation file and everything. You don't get anything to do with the legal advice or that sort of thing, but you get the investigation. It's a full investigation against you with some redactions there, but pretty much everything. If they plead not guilty, then you're looking at various sort of steps along the way. There's case management. There's various other things, and there's um, 
a lot of preparation time that goes into that. Um, you're potentially not looking at a trial till maybe even 2022. Wow, really? Yeah, the courts are pretty chocker. Um, this mm. would be a, a quite a long trial, potentially mm. five or six weeks, if not yep. more. Mm-hmm. Um, that getting that sort of time in the court is actually quite hard. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that goes on in between. Um, mm. There'll be discussions, no doubt, between the lawyers on each side about refining things down or whether, and there'll be attempts to try and resolve any outstanding issues and to see whether or not you can actually get a guilty plea on some of these. That clip was provided by the Safety Tribe interview series, White Island and the WorkSafe New Zealand charges. That show is hosted by Matt Jones, always has something going on inside of his podcast and radio show that he hosts. So hopefully you'll take a listen to what he has going on there. Anyways, let's continue going down the safety pod and it's seeing exactly what is going on in the world of safety. Mix. Welcome to Safety Bites, a weekly podcast on all things related to workplace safety, hosted by me, Jason Schaffenbuehl. Assume the employer brings the employee back to work, accommodating the restriction, and the employee has no lost time beyond the waiting period in the state, and the medical bills paid by your workers' compensation carrier are $1,000. The impact on your workers' compensation premium over the three years the claim is in the experience mod calculation is an increased total premium of about $950. Yes, that's right. For medical-only claims, less than $17,500 in most states, the cost of the claim to your workers' compensation carrier is greater than what the carrier will get in increased premium. This $17,500 threshold is subject to adjustment and is called the split point. More on that later. Now assume the same injury, but lower medical costs of $750, and the employer does not accommodate the 20-pound lifting restriction with light duty. Because the employee is not working, he has paid $250 in lost wage benefits for being off work, more than the state's lost wage waiting period. So, a total cost again of $1,000. But because this is an indemnity claim, because the employee was due lost wage benefits, instead of medical only, the impact of this claim on the employer's future workers' compensation premium is about $1,900. Again, for indemnity claims under $17,500, or the split point in your state, the future impact of the injury on your workers' compensation premium is about double the cost of the claim. The exact premium impact in either situation depends on multiple factors, but every employer's ratio is very close to the example provided. Each state has its own waiting period. In some states, it's three days, while in other states, it can be up to seven days. Once an employee is off work due to a work-related injury for more than the waiting period, the employee will be eligible for lost wage benefits per the state's workers' compensation law. So it is important to understand what the waiting period is in your state. That way, you can design a light-duty program to ensure you don't have employees off work longer than the waiting period. If an employee is off work, even one day more than the waiting period, the claim becomes an indemnity claim and the savings from providing light duty is significantly less. There you go. Some interesting information and exactly what financial impact of light duty has on your organization. Anyways, that comes from Silver Lining Safety Bites, Episode 76. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Anyways, this will bring to an end Around the Safety Podcast. I hope you like this new version as you have requested with longer clips, 
shorter content, but still less than 30 minutes. I'll see you next time in Around the Safety Pod. Want more of the Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. So do you feel like you're missing out on what everyone is starting to do now, that live streaming thing, and you don't know where to start or what to do? I have the resource and the information to provide to you in regards on how you can stream onto 40 social media platforms all at one time. Yes, that's 44-0 social media platforms all at one time. All you'll need to do is go to safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's O-N-E. So just in case. And you'll be able to start live streaming just like you're hearing people starting to do right now up to 40 social media platforms.